Hello, and welcome to Site Visit, a podcast dedicated to engaging architecture everywhere. I'm Ashley Bigham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Herman. Eric, what do we do on this podcast? We visit a site, and then we talk about it. Exactly. Each episode of Site Visit begins with a visit to an architectural site chosen by the guest and follows with a conversation centered on the experience. If you like Site Visit, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and be sure to tell your friends. To keep up with the latest or to see photos from these site visits, follow us on Instagram, that's at sitevisitpod, or visit sitevisitpod.com. Today we are joined by John McMurrow, an assistant professor at the University of Michigan Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning, and a principal architect in Studio Apt, Architecture Project Theory. John, welcome to Site Visit. Hi, uh, Ashley and Eric. Thanks for having me. On today's Site Visit, we are going to discuss our recent trip to the Michigan League, a building at the University of Michigan's campus, currently home to a staged production of One Hit Wonder, a new musical performed by the Department of Musical Theater. Written by Jeremy Desmond, One Hit Wonder is a jukebox musical set to a soundtrack that includes notable one-hit wonders, such as Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves and Closing Time by Semisonic. There's a lot to discuss from the architecture of the building to the actual performance itself, and I'd love to begin by asking you, John, why you chose this destination for our site visit. I think part of the reason I chose this for the site visit was because uh, I think this format that you're working on this podcast is quite interesting, but also has its own sort of problems. And so for me, the first problem was like, what? how do you pick a piece of architecture that people could listen to, but also not experience perhaps? And so, you know, we've talked about this before, but the model that you're using of uh, the podcast visitation, and we've talked about it being based on the Doughboys. Absolutely. A podcast we both enjoy. The canon. Nick Weiger and Mike Mitchell. You know, and in that version, they go to a restaurant. Sometimes it's an L.A. restaurant, but mm-hmm. usually it's a chain restaurant and fast food. And I, and I think this, for me, haunts my imagination of what site visit is or could be <laughs> because it sets up a model where you could um, listen to this thing, but also always envision yourself going. So you could go to McDonald's or you could go to Hardee's so you could experience that thing. But I think this brings up a question for, like, architecture. Like, unless you go to a similar chain environment, mm-hmm. like a store, how are you going to describe a singular place, which is architecture, but one that's that's not easily visited? So my suggestion to go to the theater itself had sort of two meanings to try to address this. One was the goal to go to a performance, but the other was to go to something that was a specific site. And so generally, when you talk about going to something um, like the theater, it really has these two valences. You're going to a place, going to a theater, and you're also going to the theater. You're going to see a performance. And so, you know, I've been working on this issue of performance and thought that this would be a good way to get into the project. So let's start um, maybe just with the building itself a little bit. So maybe about the location on the campus, the history of the building. The Lydia Mendelssohn Theater, which is the one we went to, is located in the Michigan League, which is one of three sort of student center campus buildings on the University of Michigan campus. It's on central campus. It's not the big one and it's not the remote one. It's... Um, one that has a sort of funny collection of stuff. So the mm-hmm. theater being one of them. But I also just think it's a kind of fascinating building in that it holds multiplicities and it addresses multiplicities. It's placed on the campus has to do with like addressing the sort of front formal area. But in the back, there's this wonderful sort of private garden. On one side, there's a sort of vehicular entry that's about the... Um, 
hotel and other activities. And then there's the side we came into, which is a little sort of off to the side uh, entry into the foyer space for the theater. But like as we went there that night, it has a sort of special lighting feature that lights up. And so it's just, you know, it's just a sort of simple rectangular building, but it actually has all these weird frontages. So on the one hand, I, I like the fact that it's an architecture of multiple address. And then on the inside, it's got the theater, which we went to and we can talk about in just a minute, but it also holds uh, a couple of restaurants. It holds conference spaces. They have weddings there. They have this theater. They have the hotel. And it's just sort of this weird multiplicity, a, a building which is part of the campus, but also part of a lot of different things. For those uh, listening, trying to kind of visualize what this is like, it really does feel like your kind of typical student union building in mm -hmm. parts, where the interior scheme is basically like... Barnes and Noble slash Borders in terms of interior finishing. Um, so it, it has this kind of like genericism to it, uh -huh. but then it has really beautiful idiosyncratic moments like the theater that we uh -huh. got to experience. So uh, today, uh, to give myself a little bit more context, I went back into the building uh -huh. and got lost in this like absolute labyrinth uh -huh. of program, including a very depressing basement, which um, <laughs> they, uh, they've kind of acknowledged that it's depressing by going through and color coding each column a bright color, uh -huh. Uh -huh. not doing much. So. What's well, funny, you say it's like a Barnes & Noble, but so it's done in the 1920s, and I would say it's a sort of typical uh, collegiate neo-Gothic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, not very ornate on the outside, but it's a kind of like, yeah, sort of work-a-day type building. But I guess it's from its period, um, there's all sorts of weird nooks and crannies, mm -hmm. and so these sort of strange circulatory patterns you get into. And, and what I really liked about it and the way we experience it is, is going to this theater, we enter, you enter from a sort of side door, the building itself is a long corridor that goes down the length of it. You enter at the end of this corridor, which is a minor, minor axis of the building. But I'd never noticed this before that night. It has a kind of canopy before the door, which has the name of the theater on it. But it also has these sort of um, bright marquee lights that <laughs> oh. were shining. And I don't think those are on on any night but the performance. And hmm. so it sort of like transforms the sort of side of the building into a sort of main entry. In yeah. a way. And also when you go to the building, when the theater's not in session, you really don't know it's there. So yeah. There's a box office there, but that box office is really just a window and a wall. And, and I think it's quite... Uh, fascinating or fantastic because when you're there for the theater you have the throng of the crowds and, and you guys have brought a microphone there I don't know if you have any of the crowd <laughs> noise but it's a, you're really in like an event and this throng and it really transformed the space from what felt like a hallway any other time you're there mm -hmm. to like you're at the theater and of course the theater is on a second level so you sort of transition from this foyer up into a, a stairwell that's like packed with people trying to get in the space and so it I just think it's really an interesting example of how a building which can have these multiple uses also just transforms in terms of what's going on. I imagine I haven't been to a wedding there, but I imagine it's quite different when they're having a wedding or, or all sorts of other things. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think the stare is exactly right. It had none of the kind of uh, anticipation and the kind of potency that the space had during the performance. It really did feel like you were going up into a theater. It's a very familiar feeling, like moving toward that crowd, moving toward that noise, moving toward that foyer. And it, yeah, it is completely transformed. The theater itself. You know, it's a small shoebox theater. I think it seats about 650 people. Uh, oak line, so, you know, very traditional. I, th I understand that oak helps with the acoustics. Um, I've gone there quite a bit to see the operas, which you think of the opera as a sort of big-scale, bombastic thing. They stage operas on that, you know, relatively small theater, and it's very immersive. You don't... 
uh, it's both intimate, but it doesn't feel small when you're in it. And so I just think it's a sort of fantastic space to see that. And I know the university has a very strong musical theater department, and they do a lot of the, the shows there. They use it a number of times a year. Um, and so it's a really great chance to get really up close to performance and see it in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And the history of the building, too, just I was reading a little bit about it this morning in preparation, and the history of the building is so interesting because it actually was also originally designed as this kind of collection of different pieces of program, um, but it was actually started by the Women's League. Yes, so. that's right. Michigan Union, which is the main historic gathering point in the 20s, was uh, male-only. Mm-hmm. Co-ed university, but a male-only union, so it was developed as a as an alternative space for female students. Uh, existed in that way, I understand, for quite some time, and then sort of in the '60s, there was a lot of changes. And and what I understand, it's really only in the '90s that it's sort of been repositioned as a collective space that has all these kind of activities. Oh, wow. So maybe we should also start to talk about the performance itself or the theater, the performance, the kind of space of the stage, I know, is is another kind of piece of architecture. Having looked at the plans for the building, it's not very big backstage. It has a a cyclorama wall, which I've seen in some of the performances, which enhances the acoustics. We didn't see that Hmm. for this performance because it had more of a a design set. But I was trying to figure out, like, their green room situation and these other things. And it seems like there's a backstage and just, like, really tiny wings. So Hmm. now I have a sort of new Hmm. admiration or something for the fact that there's a lot of people on stage at some point. And and at another point, they're all just sort of... I guess, pressed against the wall waiting to come back out on stage. Like, there's no real, um, yeah, nowhere for them to go. So one of the things that I'm doing here at the university is I'm teaching a group of students for their architectural thesis. And the theme that we're running this year is called Thesis the Musical. And so, as I mentioned, we took the students there. And and the reason we're looking at the the musical, uh, which I think... Uh, explains because one, they're going to design a theater for their thesis, and some of, some of this is just to like when they go to visit a performance like that, is to learn about the format and the technical requirements. Uh, and then I think some of the inspiration to offer this class was that uh, I think as you look at musicals and as you experience them and you sort of think about them as forms of design, they're very complex, intricate organizational entities. Like there's a lot of work, not only like the talent of singing and the writing of the book and all the things that are obvious, but just the coordination of all the efforts, I think, is this amazing organizational entity. And so hoping to be inspired by the students. And and frankly, musicals are fun. Uh, They're usually not very complex narratives, but they're really just like affect machines, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, sad songs, happy songs, but sort of joyous moments. And so some of that was to get the students to think about a different kind of model for architecture, how architecture could reach an audience, how architecture could have a different sort of presence, which I think goes to the what I consider to be the sort of problematic of uh, the musical, whether it's on the theater or on film. And how it relates to architecture. Because the thing that we're discovering in our research is that the main problem of the musical, the one that like every musical has to address in one way or another, is why are these people singing? (laughs) 
Like it's a very unnatural act to suddenly break in a song. And so as we, you know, have looked at these different moments, you could see a sort of development in history about how um, you can incorporate singing. So like the early musicals, particularly the film ones, are what's called backstage musicals. They're really films about people uh, getting together to put on a show. So the final scene will be the premiere and then people sing. And then as you go on, you start to have things like uh, dream sequences uh, where people will be moving through the city and they'll go into a sort of fantasy. Or finally, you'll get these moments where in the sort of more mature model where you have something like West Side Story. Well, they just break in a song. They've worked out the model. And I think this sort of addresses uh, a condition that architecture finds because architecture also exists in a sort of continuity of building. So we have buildings all around us. We experience them all the time. But I think architecture, capital A, is a kind of special thing. It's a kind of eruption out of the ordinary. So I think what we're trying to look at is like how can architecture, you know, like the musical, find its relationship to a narrative of every day, hmm. but also reconcile itself with being this like super exceptional mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And so when we go to the theater, uh, you, us together or uh, with the students, you know, we're really trying to, well, maybe not us because <laughs> this is what we're talking about, but with the students trying to look at not only like the thing that's happening on stage, which is the performance, which is great and wonderful, but also like, well, how does that performance um, sort of erupt out of the everyday? And so in that sense, looking at, you know, the theatrical experience, of course, already starts before the curtain goes up. Like all of these people are having a regular day. They're coming to the theater. <laughs> Suddenly the performance takes place. Like what are the sort of uh, measures and overlaps between sort of common experience and special experience? And so this is why we wanted to go to the musical. So One Hundred Wonder was had its world premiere, which we happened to go see. It's a new production uh, made in collaboration between Arca Media and the uh, Department of Musical Theater here at the University of Michigan. Uh, the book was by uh, Jeremy Dustman. Um, it's a jukebox musical. Yeah. <laughs> so this means it's described as like hit songs from the 80s to today. I mean, the jukebox musical is another one of these musical formats, which is trying to combine basically disparate material mm-hmm. into a narrative. Mm-hmm. So the songs already mm-hmm. exist. Uh, and then the challenge of the musical, going back to that notion of like, why are people singing, mm-hmm. is to figure out what happens in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, would, would Mamma Mia would be like an example Yeah, like Mamma Mia or... Yeah. What's really interesting about that is One Hit Wonder, um, in terms of this problematic of like, how do you get people mm-hmm. to sing, uh, it uses, it utilizes a, a kind of... Um, uh, a plot vehicle of there being uh, two kind of main characters who are a duet singing pop group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's frequent performances throughout the performance itself. But also it does that kind of tricky business with musicals where characters, uh, ancillary characters that maybe aren't singers themselves, break into songs. So it, it's kind of a match. Yes. All the different approaches. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what did you think about the kind of choice of song? I was assuming, without knowing much about the performance before we went, that the songs would be a bit older, but they really mm-hmm. were kind of 80s to present, maybe 80s, 90s, early 2000s some. Um, and I, I, maybe that just has to do with the kind of audience yeah. of the student, that that's kind of nostalgic for them, or or I don't know. It was, it was, they were interest, it was an interesting collection of songs, I thought. That's not what you said when we saw the performance. <laughs> Actually, what you said is, I didn't like I any say? of these songs. Why did they pick them? Um, which, fair enough. Fair An enough. Interesting could be good or bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's right. I mean, yeah, so it was things like uh, Closing Time mm, and yeah, yeah. Walking on Sunshine. They're pretty 
Yeah, they're not on my mix list to be sure. <laughs> uh, I was reading in the literature; they called it uh, "Rock of Ages for All Ages." So it's clearly uh, constructed as a populist uh, yeah. vehicle. Mm-hmm. You know, and we talked about this a bit before. What goes into the selection? Like, I assume some people really like these songs, yeah, and yeah, maybe yeah. the people who yeah. did it really like these songs. Right. I also think somehow they required a range of voice uh, mm-hmm. that they just worked very well. Mm-hmm. I think they're somehow like both technically harder than you think to mm-hmm. sing, at least the way they orchestrate them. Mm-hmm. And also there's just like, you know, it's um, popular. Right, it's right. it's yeah. really like, you know, we don't have the sort of same canon of popular song that say Frank Sinatra has, where we all know the standards, but I don't know, maybe these are the contemporary standards. Yeah. You know, John is a kind of connoisseur, someone who's been watching a lot of musicals. Yes. I know that you guys have been doing intense research. Uh, and uh, there's another topic here about the kind of notion of a filmed musical versus a kind of performed musical. But what kind of struck out at you in One Hit Wonder? You know, uh, like you've seen a lot of these. So what did sure. anything strike you as like particularly contemporary, particularly new or just interesting? I think because we're studying it in the thesis group, um, not as overall narratives yeah. because we're not novelists and we're not trying to tell the story. We've really concentrated on the musical number or the scene, so a sort of smaller unit. And so I enjoyed the overall thing, but I think my attention was drawn to this relationship between the song, the performers, and for lack of a better term, stagecraft. And so like one of the things that I thought was really fascinating that they did is because it's because it's a jukebox musical that's about people performing, people performing in a band. So the opening number is a guy on stage singing a sort of a stadium anthem song. And as he starts singing, the performers rush from the back of the theater and sort of form a mosh pit at the front of the stage. And so you're, they're, they're starting to work with this notion of, yes, they're in the theater, yes, on our stage, but they're trying to change that meaning of the stage. Um, and then also in that opening number, the lights were quite bright. The, and they're yeah, bright facing us. Light, yeah. and, and I think, because they did this a couple times, and mm-hmm. I think what they're trying to do there is like, it must be have really bright lights to be on stage. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, they're giving you the, the lighting that you would be on the stage, even though you're in the audience, mm-hmm. to try to heighten the drama of that effect. Mm-hmm. Now, they quickly change from realizing that this is this opening number is the kind of fantasy of this performer. He's actually in a sort of <laughs> honky-tonk bar at 3 a.m. in the morning, and none of this is real. And so I think those moments, which you, which simply by... We could say, I guess it's lighting and, and people and all the classic things, but you're really shifting the scenes without moving anything. Mm-hmm. You, you, you're in the audience mentally constructing, understanding the codes of what the space is and then transition to another. Yeah. I think that final scene, they did a similar thing where suddenly the audience is in the backstage of a, another stadium again with the bright lights in our face and then somehow just by turning around they were able to make us understand that we were now changing from backstage to front stage. Mm-hmm. I think things like that are super fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they, they also really leverage the intimacy of the theater in both of those examples because I think that I've mm-hmm. been to shows before where you have this kind of idea of the performance coming down, performers sure. excuse me, coming down through the audience and in and 
I would give the example of like the Michigan Theater, which is yeah. a, like a, th- a theater venue downtown, which has a large marquee and a, is the largest kind of mm-hmm. uh, the- one of the larger theater spaces downtown, a performance space I'm used to. And that trope doesn't really completely work sure. uh, nearly as well. But in the intimacy of this theater, because you're always close to an aisle, uh, you really felt like in contact with the performers and felt like part of an audience of something happening uh, in, 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 in the kind of reality of the show. Of course, mm-hmm. you are an audience, but it mm-hmm. became a kind of a performance as an audience mm-hmm. in a really interesting way. And I, I also I, I, I really noted the lighting and thought that was mm-hmm. used to really dramatic effect. Another aspect of the setup that I thought was really well done is um, because it's a musical, because it's a sort of... I don't know, popular song or rock songs. They have this sort of classic setup of the guitarist, keyboardist, drummers. But instead of putting them in the orchestra pit, they put them on stage. But they, because of the way a stage works, they don't put them on stage. They put them on a kind of balcony level at the backstage. And so there's moments in the narrative where that balcony gets used for different parts of the story. But basically for the whole performance, you can see the actual musical performers at the same time as you're see, seeing it enacted, which mm-hmm. I think is an interesting use and, and puts it in a different, now this is sort of like, I don't know, pulling in more esoteric examples from maybe what One Hit Wonder was aspiring to, but like one of the things we're looking at in the thesis group is the way Wagner mm-hmm. changed the way the orchestra pit operated in his theater at Bayreuth where taking it from the sort of orchestra pit, which was a divider between the audience and the stage, and basically putting it under the stage. So that you, you know, for the Wagnerian sense, you lost attention to the manufacture of the music, so you could be totally immersed in the experience, the otherworldly experience of the opera. And so I don't think they're trying to defamiliarize the conventions of musical theater, but I think it's quite interesting to, like, put the the generation of the music up on stage, it's sort of on a second level at the back Mm -hmm. so you can see it and be aware of it at the same time because I I do think there's this aspect in the musical where these are people writing and performing music. There's certain points where they'll be talking and go into a song, but there's a number of scenes where they're on different formats of stage. And so I think the actuality of performers on the stage made made it an effective presentation of that sort of space. Yeah. I'm really interested in your use of the word convention there because I'm interested in um, kind of getting back to this conversation about the architecture versus the capital A architecture as a kind of exception. So um, the kind of observations uh, we're talking about have to deal with understanding how the format works and then noticing a way in which that convention has been broken. So is there an ambition there to find a similar tactic in architecture in terms of working through conventions uh, or is that too direct of a kind of connection between the way you'd like them to work, the students to work with this material and how you do it with your own work? Um, we'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think, the, I think the musical is, the, is a fascinating cultural form in its own right. Yeah. And I think looking at it as an architect, uh, one can be inspired in lots of different ways. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things we're looking at when we watch these scenes are, you know, noticing as a designer. And so, like, one of the examples we've looked at is the very famous scene from the movie Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire where he's dancing on the ceiling. Um, and and so the students uh, who's presenting this work showed a video that um, illustrates how they did that. And we all know how they did that at this point. They mounted a... 
a camera on a room that was on a sort of gurney that allowed it to turn, and that's how they generate the effect mechanically. But when, when the student presented it, he showed the, the movie version and then a version that sort of normalized the rotation so you could see where uh, Fred Astaire was in relationship to the ground. And it turns out that most of the magic of what was happening there wasn't a mechanical technique. It was Fred Astaire. Okay. Yeah. And so as the room's turning, he affiliates to what was the ground or what was the wall in different ways. And you, you really can't tell. His body is not exactly conforming to gravity. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a, that's an interesting design uh, idea. Yeah. Like how architecture relates to the ground is often seen as a sort of fundamental condition of how we organize buildings and space. And so if the student could, like, follow that line and try to figure out, like, how is Fred Astaire relating to the ground? And could that be a way of giving a point of entree into rethinking the whole notion of column, support, other kinds of things? So I think that's one of the aspirations is to have the students have a, a new point of entry yeah. into design thinking through inspiration by this other field, even if it's not exactly singing and dancing yeah. in the end. It seems like in the um, both in the thesis that uh, you're teaching right now, and then also sometimes in your writing, you're you're referencing musicals, and then you're also sometimes referencing films, and then of course you're for the thesis watching the musical films, and in a way, and so I'm I'm kind of curious what what you see is beyond the kind of just obvious format live action versus recorded action um, of, of the kind of theater versus film. Like what what do you think the kind of what are the architectural implications of the different formats maybe? and where, because we've talked about them for theater a little bit, but um, like, what do you think the architectural implications of the film, either as a medium or as a kind of stage setting could be? No, I think they're clearly like very different and one can achieve things in film. And as we've like looked at all these different um, musicals on film and we watch them on film mostly because they're convenient. Like that's that's the point of media that you can access (laughs) them when you like. Uh, But then you do realize that the... The camera becomes a character, and how that like would translate in design is not clear, but it's clearly part of the the logic of the conception. And so you see something like Busby Berkeley, with his ornate geometric display of bodies, usually using a fixed point camera, so that the inspection of that geometry can remain static, uh, as opposed to something like. Um, Gene Kelly in Singing in the Rain, when he actually sings in the rain, it uses a a dolly camera so that you can scan along with him along the sidewalk as he's moving through these different elements. And so, yeah, I think they're clearly different, but I also think the film offers um, opportunities to... I don't know what it offers. It offers something good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The other format I kind of want to touch on briefly was the sitcom, which I think... um, you know, I think uh, for those not familiar, and you can uh, certainly elaborate for us better than I can, but Studio Apt actually uh, wrote, produced, filmed, hired actors, and uh, put on a sitcom. And I'm very interested there because the format delivery was actually the sitcom and not the idea of maybe leveraging sitcom towards architecture. And sure. I, I want to talk about, you know, the um, performance and venues and formats for architects to work because I think it's a fascinating project. I did that in collaboration with my partner, Julia McMorrow, and the idea was to 
use the format as a way to sort of test the architecture. And okay. so we had an idea for a new kind of house, kind of goofy, like a <laughs> sort of like neo-tatami mat where you'd live always on the ground. Uh, it was constructed of these series of platforms. So there are some areas that were like a bed, some were like a couch, some were like a table. But you would basically do all of your living in the 16 by 16 foot area. So the sitcom just becomes a way of having people use the space without just like turning them loose. Yeah, and so they, yeah. it becomes like certain scenarios. So when Jack comes crashing through the door on Three's Company, you know, you can say that's his entry into the scene, but it's also like, I don't know, a testing of entry. And so part of that was just like a, a testing mechanism. I think the other part and something that the, I've been working with or quite interested in for a while is how does architecture present itself to the world? So this mm -hmm. is a bit like the musical thing, but mm -hmm. also with the sitcom thing. I, uh, Eric, you were able to join us for a previous studio where we did opera. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and what I like about it is in some ways it can put architecture front and center. So like architecture is the star of the show. It was the star of the sitcom. The platform was the sort of abstract um, space, brightly colored, that didn't look like any other house. It was sort of jarring, but then you have the banality of the sitcom conversation going on amongst it. And I just like that formula for architecture. I like the formula that like architecture can be intent uh, full. It can have intensities. It can have its own aspirational logic. But it also sits in a world that isn't exactly indifferent to it, but uses it for its own purpose. So it's not always the star of the show, but it's not an argument for everyday architecture. Yeah. So yeah. it's both there with its own logic, but also... Yeah, it's a support for other things. I think then the formats that you're using make a lot of sense because it's it's a hard thing to represent. It's a hard thing to kind of talk about, right? right? Mm -hmm. And I think that by um, bringing in these formats, there's a kind of, as you mentioned, like a kind of technical overlay uh, that comes entering in and also a certain disciplinarity. There's a mm -hmm. disciplinarity to a sitcom. There's mm -hmm. a disciplinarity to a musical. And I think that's really fascinating because... The things that you want to talk about, um, especially related to how people use things or how things perform, can be difficult. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it as well, you know, architecture is a big field with lots of different interests. I do think there's a, a tendency, maybe it waxes and wanes, like in the sort of intense interrogation of, say, technique, which has been with us for, for quite a while, of the digital and now the post-digital, one becomes like sort of focused on the sort of cognitive value of the object created. So this is, you know, whatever the creation is, be it a construction or a fabrication or installation, its primary receptive value is to like understand its logic, the logic of its manufacturer, yeah. how it stands vis-a-vis -vis other exhibitions of architectures or other um, examples. So it calls attention to itself and draws the sort of uh, focus into contemplation of its own existence. Yeah. And that's where I think these formats, and I, and I think you see this within a lot of contemporary work that's interested in fictions, that's interested in narratives, because it just gives you a different way of understanding the architecture's participation in the generation of activities. Maybe another generation would call them programs. I think we might call them narratives. Mm. Uh, and a sort of skilling up or scaling up of, we could say, organizational logics mm -hmm. into bigger applications, things that people could use in maybe new and surprising ways.
I'm curious, just um, thinking of, of you visiting the musical the second day in a row and then also with all of your students, um, did you get a chance to talk to them afterwards? I'm kind of curious on their take. What did they think about either the music selection or the kind of overall event itself that maybe we didn't, the three of us were maybe thinking about it in a different way or um, did they have any new insights? Uh, so that's to come. I will say looking at the reaction from YouTube the <laughs> night before, which I would say... I don't know. I'm called nonplus versus the <laughs> students. Um, they were much more enthusiastic. And I would say it's not generational because you're not that much older than mm-hmm. them. Um, but I would say it's in terms of training. So we've mm-hmm. been spending six mm-hmm. weeks looking at these musical scenes, talking yeah. about it. And so I think they had an appreciation, which for me was kind of the most surprising thing. Yeah. Because one of the interests I have in musicals, and it's an interest that I've gotten from my wife, Julia, who sort of has introduced this to me in a 20-year process, and now I'm totally sold. Um, but, you know, as Julia and I, because she's also running this this uh, thesis section, which is called Thesis the Musical, that we could actually perform it someday, um, was that it was just kind of obvious. So, like, when we did the sitcom, we're like, oh, everybody loves sitcoms. Like, that's a natural thing. And we love musicals so much at this point. We're like, everybody's going to love a musical. And then your reaction, but also others, because the students' reaction as well. When we first started to show them, they signed up for this class, but they're just sort of like stone-faced, like, eh. And, and it turns out I didn't realize how much these cultural forms aren't transparent. Yeah. So, yeah. like, I think I was looking yeah. at the musical as the quick fix. Like, everybody's most musical. So architecture would be like, the musical will be all set. No, it turns out that has its own set of conventions and... You have to sort of like skill up the receptivity in the mm. audience to be able to appreciate it. So. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think there is a certain uh, 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 connoisseur that needs to be like developed in it. Because like I was thinking about, I think if we watched a film of a musical, I would have had a different take on it. Because I mm. watched lots of films, sure. and I yeah. sure. love talking about film. And I think that I have a, also a way, a capacity. Uh-huh. I mean, I think the this this thing you bring up about. Um, the kind of architecture calling to itself and uh, rewarding reading um, at different speeds is is really interesting because I think that the musical and its kind of performative immediacy does have a way to be received, but then there is a kind of second layer sure. where once you understand the conventions, like with all disciplines, yeah. that kind of new mm-hmm. access to appreciation is available and you can understand the exception when it happens, um, like the inversion of the stage from front to mm-hmm. back or the people coming in from the audience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you can sense a kind of estrangement from the format if you're fresh to it, but if you really know the history of it, I think you start to appreciate it more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I'd never heard this notion of Wagner's uh, kind of burying the pit mm-hmm. uh, and the kind of uh, loss of visual connection with the with the source of the music. And mm-hmm. I think now, like, it has me reconsidering mm-hmm. the fact that the architecture was basically plastered mm-hmm. Onto the backstage set, mm-hmm. or excuse me, the music, the musicians mm-hmm. were plastered onto the backstage set the entire time in this musical, mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I I think that I hadn't calculated that as such a specific choice, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I think just what you're mentioning about the one, the kind of stage presence of these undergraduate students and to the point where you really forget. um, I'm imagining them as 40 year old adults because that's who they're playing. You know, they're playing these media executives, music industry uh, (laughs) celebrities. And so you really do kind of forget that. And that that is something um, just you know, in what we do every day as architects is a lot of what we do is kind of actually a public presentations, public performance, um, conversations with clients. 
events or um, uh, lectures or all these kind of public speaking formats, um, I think there's something really to learn from those those mm. students in, in that way. And then I think with the song choices, I'm, I really loved actually a couple in the middle maybe where... Um, where the lyrics of the song actually took on a completely new meaning yes, because of right. the, you know, I think that's where the jukebox musical has such a power is where you see a kind of nerdy, skinny, lanky character accountant suddenly turn into a kind of hopeless romantic mm-hmm. or, you know, the the characters really transform before you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then and then maybe just a, like a technical point, which is always. I see a, uh, you see films dealing with this a lot. One is how you deal with the presentation of social media in the film mm-hmm. or, or on TV. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, kind of show someone texting without, you know, mm-hmm. filming the screen of the of the cell phone? Um, and this like tried this uh, musical actually tried to incorporate um, one of the characters is a kind of huge social media celebrity. And so how her kind of voiceover uh, would would be her postings and the camera lights. You know, there was a particular kind of light effect they did every time she took a selfie or, you know, mm-hmm. which is something, again, kind of mm-hmm. more more contemporary problem for the musical that was not. So, you know, mm-hmm. there may be historical precedents, but maybe not related to that. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's like on House of Cards, they solve the yeah, texting yeah, problem yeah. by like, bling, like they bring <laughs> up on the screen the yeah. text uh, so you can follow along. I don't think I've seen this much like um, contemporary technology integrated mm-hmm. into a musical format. So the Mercy Faith character, <laughs> um, every time she would make a post, there would be this chime of music as Ashley was talking about, but also this super bright light emitting from her phone, which I actually think Mm -hmm. is a real accessory, Mm -hmm. but it acted, of course, uh, as a spotlight on Mm -hmm. her in the Mm -hmm. show. And I just thought there were some kind of fascinating moments Mm -hmm. with the integration of that. Yeah. No, I think the accessory was a halo light like you find in portrait photography, which gives you an even illumination. (laughs) No, it's fantastic because they they use it in a dark stage to like illuminate her Mm -hmm. so you can understand that there's a photo being taken. I, I think the incorporation of technology yeah, that's interesting. I would say because it was written last week. You know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most exactly. musicals are right, like, right, right. you know, are like an older format and they maybe come from Disney or a movie and they get translated. Um, but like, yeah, my understanding is this is written very recently and like yeah. this being the world premiere uh, seems very much uh, of the moment. And I, and I thought also in the narrative they incorporated interesting things like the whole notion I was reading in the previous version uh, of the of the writer for this, the the band is called um, All About the Girl, mm-hmm. which like hinges the part of the story that the the boy girl relationship in it. But the original title um, for that group was called the Virtually Unknowns. Uh, in the sort of synopsis, and and so the whole story hinges on the fact that uh, a video that they made mm-hmm. in the '90s goes viral when somebody posts it on Twitter. Yeah. So yeah, it seems very yeah. much of this moment in trying to figure out like models of distribution and today. One of the things that has come up in the readings we've done about the musicals is this notion of self-reflexivity, that musicals always seem to figure out a way to acknowledge their status as a musical. (laughs) Uh, That means both like referencing previous examples, but also trying to you know this thing that we we're talking about before about like why are they singing? Yeah, like yeah, it has yeah. to sort of acknowledge this this aspect of it. And so, you know, a theoretical concept like that is interesting because one wonders is it just like part of 
once one starts to write for people singing in the world, does mm-hmm. this just come up, or is this an idea shared by, like as you said, connoisseurship and mm-hmm. understanding the model? I don't know, but it's. It, quite interesting. Yeah, it did that a couple of ways too. Like there was actually a wonderful moment that I thought could have been even more effective where um, the kind of various band members are quitting the group because the group is protesting um, the abuse they're getting from the tour manager. I can't remember the exact plot uh, point, but various people quit, and that includes Gunner, mm-hmm. the affable, lovable uh, bassist <laughs> for the group, who's been a character the entire time, but also the drummer. And when the drummer comes down, he says, I've been here the whole time, and then he gestures back toward where the backs, the, the kind of uh, the drummer for the um, quartet or group that was playing the music the entire time is revealed. But then later, that person is revealed as an actor and he's not actually the drummer. And I wish it's not a very meaty role. He just has to say, I've been here the whole time. And I thought it would just would have been marvelous yeah. if it was the actual drummer. The actual drummer. <laughs> it's an organizational problem. Yeah. So yeah. if you look at the musical, not as an artistic achievement, but a, a problem of quantities and distribution, like the mm-hmm. way you'd look at programming. Uh, you sort of realize why that might be. So somebody yeah. still has to drum, so they can't exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the benefit of seeing the same thing two days in a row is I, I knew all the actors. So in the scene <laughs> where everybody rushes down and makes the mosh pit at the beginning, hmm. it's full of, at that point, you just understand them as members of the chorus. But Stuart, the the secondary uh, romantic lead, yeah, yeah. is in there in a T-shirt, uh, and the woman who plays the agent is there. All these people. <laughs> so at the beginning, the the sort of fictive audience is quite big. Towards the end, it's quite small because everybody who has a real role has gotten peeled off. Oh, that's amazing. In yeah. the end. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just a matter of like how many people they can fill and put there. Because yeah. I didn't, I wasn't as fast as you, Eric. I thought that might be the real drummer. <laughs> it was only in the next day I realized like, oh, no, he's not the drummer. <laughs> yeah. No, it's such an it is a really interesting organizational problem, and then of course, like the audience becomes a kind of like Greek chorus. So you start to imagine like how does this relate to past uses of? And I do like seeing the, I do like the effort that goes into like recasting the same people in different roles. And I guess that's something in movies of maybe I'm misremembering, but isn't it the case that in the Wizard of Oz, for example, like there's characters from her real life at the oh, beginning sure. oh, yeah. that yeah, recur, yeah, 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 yeah. right? And I think that like that kind of. Uh, like, you know, it, it might be like an organizational or just like resources problem yeah, yeah. on a musical side, but then it becomes kind of thematic sure. uh, within Wizard of Oz where you kind of recast the same person in a kind of similar role. And I think that's really interesting. And then the one other moment where this musical got very lazy is that the bartender shows up at the end to quit also from the group. And the guy is off stage for a clearly about 10 minutes and doesn't even change his t-shirt. Uh, so I This really bothers you. Really, this really bothers you. It's a real you, You've point. mentioned this a couple times that this guy, his, this poor guy in his black t-shirt was not sufficiently differentiated in all of his appearances. I will say on the second performance, I noticed he is in the office in a suit but sort of towards the back. Ah, so he does okay. know how to change his costume. He just didn't do it enough. They ran out of t-shirts there. Give him a break. <laughs> John McMurrow, thank you so much for taking the time to take us to the musical and for joining us in this wonderful conversation. For more of John's recommendations on what to watch and listen to, visit our website. For Eric Herman, I'm Ashley Bigham. Thanks for joining us.
Site Visit is hosted by Ashley Bigham and Eric Herman of Outpost Office and is produced by Matthew Shulman.